Wow. Thanks, guys. What a blessing leading us into worship of the King. Um, but before I heard from Tyler this week, uh, I had already begun preparing uh, a series of messages for you uh, that will take place over the next couple of eight weeks or so. And so it's a little bit different, but I believe it's going to bless every single one of you. Thank you, Miss Patty. It's time for Children's Church. Amen. Uh, eight years old and younger are dismissed for Kids Corner. Thank you, Patty. <laughs> Poor Tyler. I bet you he don't get no breaks. Amen. Oh, don't feel sorry. <laughs> oh, we do. <laughs> Amen. But anyway, every person in this room will be able to identify with the messages that we're going to hear over the next eight weeks because at some point in every single one of our lives, there's come a point where you have thought, man, life is the pits. Man, this life is the pits. And as we look at the life of Joseph, we're going to be able to look at godly ways and learn godly ways to deal with things like family dysfunction. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Some more than others. Disaster. We'll learn godly ways of how to deal with temptation, disappointment, delay, or waiting. Uh, godly ways of dealing with things like holding grudges. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Amen? Godly ways of, of uh, dealing with things like doubt. Things like broken trust. Things like forgiveness. Today we're going to begin with the first of those subjects entitled Dealing with an Imperfect Family. If you think that your family has problems, consider the marriage disaster that occurred when 76-year-old Bill Baker married Edna Harvey. Edna happened to be Bill Baker's granddaughter's husband's mother. That's where the dysfunction began. According to Baker's granddaughter, Lynn, she said... My mother-in-law is now my step-grandma. My granddaddy is now my stepfather-in-law. My mom is also my sister-in-law, and my brother is also my nephew. But even crazier than that is that now I'm married to my uncle, and my own children are my cousins. You think your family's bad? That term, dysfunction, is often used uh, in speaking about families. And it said that every family has dysfunction. It's just a matter of to what degree. Can I get a witness? Amen. Amen. We all got dysfunction. But that word dysfunction mostly refers to broken down relationships that occur when one member of the family gets hurt in some way. But from a Christian perspective, dysfunction happens in a family when the home is not functioning like God intended it to function. When that happens, when you don't do it like God said do it, then dysfunction occurs. It can occur from the result of divorce. Dysfunction can occur from a lack of communication, 
from rivalry with children, from uh, self-centered parents. Dysfunction often occurs because of addictions, because of child abuse or sexual abuse or spousal abuse or extramarital affairs or pornography. Friend, the list goes on and on. But one of the strange dynamics in family life is this is that when children grow up in a dysfunctional family, they often repeat the same mistakes that their families committed. So that should tell us all. That should tell us all that what you and I know about marriage and parenting, whether it's good or bad, we learn growing up from our home. The end result is, Dysfunctional families create dysfunctional families for generations. And that, in essence, can become a generational curse. I believe that's part of what the Bible speaks of. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 18, that God visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Dysfunctional families often create dysfunctional families and when one lives in a dysfunctional family it can be very difficult to live for God but it's not impossible as we will see Joseph in the book of Genesis is proof that you can live with God even in the midst of a dysfunctional family Joseph was raised in a home filled with angry and jealous and deceitful people. Yet he became one of the two men that is recorded in the Bible where not one word of criticism is ever mentioned. The Bible never mentions one word of criticism about Joseph. He was faithful even in an imperfect family. And as we begin taking a look at Joseph and his life, I want to tell you, you need to be here for every one of these messages because you and I can learn valuable lessons that we can apply to our own lives through this young man named Joseph. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37 as we begin in verse 1. Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers, and the lad with, was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them, excuse me, of them to his father. Now Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him, and they could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, Please hear this dream with, with which I have dreamed. There were 
There we were, binding shivs in the field. Then behold, my shift arose and stood upright, and indeed your shivs stood all around and bowed down to my shift. And his brother said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed still another dream, and he told it to his brothers and said, Look, I've dreamed another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Let us pray. Father, we're so grateful for practical lessons that your word teaches us. Father, I pray that you would help us today to learn how to deal with an imperfect family by faith. Trusting you in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. First of all, I want you to see that Joseph had imperfect parents. Joseph's family was so unbelievable, it could have been a TV soap opera. Joseph had one real mother, two, excuse me, three stepmothers, ten stepbrothers, one stepsister, and a father who let them all run wild, all under the same roof, all at the same time. It was crazy. Can you imagine the turmoil in that family? I mean, it's difficult enough when when blood family tries to live together, amen? Can you imagine trying to put this kind of blended family together in the same home? Jacob, Joseph's daddy, was not only a polygamist married to four women at the same time. He was also an unconcerned parent who openly showed favoritism amongst his children. Joseph's dad was a weak and ineffective father, and he was the classic passive parent. And Jacob's wives, weak and insecure, that means that Joseph's home had four unhappy women. Is that a recipe for disaster or what? Four unhappy women under the same roof. And earlier in the story of this family, great tragedy had befallen them. As they traveled across the country, Jacob's daughter, Dinah, was raped. Raped by one of the local princes. And when Jacob heard what had happened, you're not going to believe what he did. He did nothing. But when his sons saw that their father was either too weak or too unconcerned to do anything about this, they took matters into their own hands. They devised a plan, and they went into the city and killed every single man in that city. And when Jacob learned what they had done, you're not going to believe what he did. He didn't do nothing. 
He wasn't concerned about what happened to Dinah. He wasn't concerned about what happened uh, after that horrific sin that his sons had committed in that city. All he was concerned about was a bad reputation amongst the local people. Still, he did nothing. Later on, Jacob's oldest son, Reuben, had a sexual affair with Bilhah, his concubine. And do you know what he did? Nothing. When he learned of Dinah's rape, he did nothing. When he learned that his sons had committed murder, he did nothing. When he learned that his own son had committed incest, guess what he did? Nothing. You know, it's hard to calculate what Jacob's passiveness as a parent did to contribute to the turmoil and to the dysfunction of this family. Charles Swindoll said, Jacob is the classic illustration of a man who was too busy for his family, too preoccupied with himself, too unconcerned, which meant he was too passive to deal with what was occurring in the lives of his kids. But not only was Jacob a passive parent, but for 17 years, his children watched him as he played favorites with Joseph. Now back in chapter 37 and verse 3, we learn now Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Joseph, now 17 years old, was the firstborn son of his father's favorite wife, Rachel. So Joseph was the baby, amen? He was the baby boy, born late in Jacob's life, and he was clearly favored by Jacob. Now, the reason is, is probably because most parents are a little bit more relaxed, a little more easygoing with the baby of the family. They've learned a little bit from their years of parenting. They've learned from previous experience. But another reason for that relaxed approach is because the parents themselves are more adjusted. They're more used to being married. But more often than not, parents are just a little bit better off financially. So they give and give and give. To the younger child. But no matter what the reason, no matter what the reason, this kind of favoritism can definitely cause jealousy amongst the older kids. And it did. For not only did Jacob love Joseph more than all the older children, but he openly gave Joseph more than he did to the older children. And Jacob never even tried to hide it. He never tried to hide his partiality. For in verse 3, it says that he also made him, made him a tunic of many colors. That phrase, tunic of many colors, means a multicolored robe that's richly, has rich ornaments on it. But it's more than that. This robe extended down to his ankles and down to his wrists and had some, some rich embroidery along the edges. You see, this kind of robe that was made for Joseph was a robe, a garment, worn by nobility. It was a robe that was worn only by the wealthy folks. Meanwhile, Joseph's brothers wore garments that were short and sleeveless. 
It's that kind of garment that you wear when you're climbing up hills. It's the kind of garment that they would wear when they're wading through swampy waters. The kind of garment one might wear when they're carrying sheep on their shoulders. In essence, Joseph's robe declared that he was exempt from any manual labor. Even the colors of his robe indicated that he didn't expect to get dirty and he wasn't going to lift a finger and that robe wasn't going to get soiled in any way. But this robe was far more than just a garment with bright colors. It represented Jacob's or Joseph's favored position in the family. Even more than that, this robe that Joseph was wearing made by his father Jacob signified him as being the rightful heir in the family. You see, when Jacob's eldest son Reuben had that sexual affair with his father's concubine, he lost his birthright. And according to the custom of the time, the eldest son, when the eldest son lost his birthright, then the birthright went to the oldest son of the next wife. So Joseph, the baby boy of the family, became the heir of Jacob's estate. But it seems to me, as I read the scriptures, that Joseph kind of rubbed it in his face, in their faces a little bit. It seems to me that he kind of had a little bit of a prideful attitude as he was wearing that robe and being the rightful family heir. And there in verse 2, we're told that Joseph brought a bad report about his brothers to their father. On the surface, you might think, well, Joseph's being a tattletale. But what you don't know is this is that all the other brothers were beginning to follow the religion of the Canaanites, which involved worshiping idols and immorality, the kind I can't speak of in the church. So because of their own behavior, every time those brothers looked on Joseph and the robe that he was wearing, they were reminded of Joseph's favor and reminded of how more distinguished he was than they were. And they became to hate him. They hated him for it. They hated him for being all the things that they were not. Joseph had imperfect parents, but indeed, Joseph had imperfect brothers. This story repeatedly tells us that Joseph's brothers hated him. First in verse 4, we're told that the brothers saw how Jacob favored Joseph and they hated him to the point where they could not even speak peaceably to him. Well, that's pretty bad when you hate your own brother so much that you can't even speak to him politely. Again, in the next verse, verse 5, when Joseph tells them of his dream, we're reminded again that his brothers hated him, hated him even more. And finally revealed in verse 11 that his brothers envy him. They were jealous of him. They were fit to be tied over the favor that Jacob was showing to Joseph. Do they envy him because of the robe he was wearing? Did they envy him because of his position of privilege? Do they envy him because of his displays of his father's affection? 
Do they envy him for the fact that even God seems to have a special place for him because of the dreams? Probably all those things contributed to the envy and hate that his brothers had for Joseph. You know, today more than ever, we face the challenges of blended families. Experts say that the number one reason given for the failure of second marriages is conflicts over issues regarding the raising of children. But whether it's a first marriage or a second marriage, parents have got to learn that the very nature of kids means that you can't treat them all exactly alike. They're different. You can't treat them exactly alike, but you can love them equally, and you can treat them fairly. Although Jacob certainly did not. But not only did Joseph have imperfect parents and imperfect brothers, but Joseph learned that he himself was imperfect. I think it's safe to assume that Joseph, who was 17 years old, was probably a normal teenager. I doubt that Joseph understood everything that was happening in his life and how it would reflect on his future. I believe that Joseph was probably, at the very least, very naive and possibly even a little arrogant. He was probably a little smart aleck. Do you know any teenagers that are smart alecks? Glad you said it, not me. I bet you that Joseph probably thought that the world revolved around him. Know any teenagers like that? And I'm sure that he wore his special new coat out into the fields when he checked on his brothers. Amen? It'd be like wearing a tuxedo to go work in the yard. Amen? kind of rubbing it in their face. Hardly appropriate, perhaps even a little proud. Joseph also told his brothers about these dreams of superiority, that he was better than them, and he would always be better than them. But did he have to? Did he have to tell his brothers about those dreams? No, he didn't. You know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand that all he was doing was just fanning the flames of their hatred and their envy and their jealousy of him. Friends, I know that we can't blame ourselves for the faults of other people, but you know what? We always ought to look in the mirror and be realistic about our own faults. We always ought to look in the mirror, be willing to examine ourselves and accept responsibility for our own actions. I read about a construction worker took out his lunch and said, dang, bologna sandwiches again. I'm so sick of bologna sandwiches, if I see another one, I think I'll just die. And then a co-worker said, well, why not ask your wife to pack something else for your lunch? To which he replied, I'm not married. I packed my own lunch. <laughs> Story reminds us of some of the baloney in our own lives, amen, that we put there ourselves, right? When we look at our imperfect families, maybe we do good 
to look in the mirror first, to see where we should accept responsibility, to see where we should be realistic about our own faults. So I wondered, how can we apply the truth of this message to our own lives? First of all, I believe that God wants you to know that we ought to look at life in the long term. And I'm going to put the weight of this one on the men in the house. Decisions that you men make not only affect yourselves, but they affect the people that care for you. The choices that you make, men, not only affect yourselves, they affect your children. The choices that you make also affect your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. We need to get in the habit of looking at life in the long term, not just in the me term, amen? Number two, we must be faithful to God regardless of our family situation. Regardless of the dysfunction, regardless of the jealousy, regardless of what's going on in your family, you ought to be faithful to God regardless. It can be so easy for us to look at our family background and begin to make excuses. My parents are divorced. I can't help being this way. I was abused as a child. My father was an alcoholic. My wife did this, and my husband did that. And the list goes on and on and on of the excuses we make for not being faithful to God. But when we trust God first and let all the other events of our past come second, we'll learn that staying close to Jesus is the way. Staying close to him is staying on course. For he is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. So not only do we need to learn to look at life in the long term, not only must we be faithful to God regardless of our family situation, but I want you to know today that God understands your situation. He understands all the circumstances that, that beset your family. And he wants to help you rise above them. He wants to help you rise above all the negative circumstances that you find in your life. He wants to help you. God said to Jeremiah, you'll seek me and you'll find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord. For I know the plans I have for you. I know the plans I have for you. Plans of peace, not of evil. Plans to give you a future and to give you a hope. God wants to help you rise above the negative circumstances in your life. But finally, I want to remind you this morning that God specializes in changing us. He specializes in changing the man in the mirror. He specializes in changing the woman in the mirror. He specializes in conforming us into his precious, beautiful, holy image. No matter what your family background is. He can change us and conform us no matter what.
regardless of our past. We can know the love of God. We can know the love of our Heavenly Father, get this, when we surrender to the Lord Jesus. When we surrender to the Lord Jesus, maybe your parents weren't perfect. Maybe your brothers aren't perfect. Maybe you're not perfect. Amen? Maybe your home life was a wreck. Maybe your home life was and is less than ideal. Maybe you made a mistake when you were a teenager that's affected your whole life. Maybe you made a, a mistake a couple of months ago and you're reeling from the consequences thereof. God wants you to know that he forgives you. He forgives you. And he wants you to help you start over. Be faithful. Be faithful to God, no matter what the circumstances. Look at life in the long term. Look at the choices you make and who they affect. Be faithful to God regardless of your family situation. Know that he wants to help you rise above the negative influences in your life. And remember, he wants to change you and conform you into the beautiful image of his son, Jesus Christ. He's good at that when we surrender. My prayer for you is today that you'll do that. You'll surrender to him and allow God to do the changing regardless of the circumstances or negative influences you find yourself with. Let us pray. Father God, Lord in heaven, Lord, as we reflect on this story of Joseph and his imperfect family, Lord, we're reminded that you died for our imperfections. Father, there is someone here today, I'm sure, that realizes they're not perfect. They realize not only are they not perfect, but that they don't have a relationship with you, Father. Lord, your word teaches us that Jesus stepped out of the glory of heaven to live a life as a man, to die a criminal's death for my imperfections and so that I would have a relationship with you. Lord, when I place my faith in the Lord Jesus and him alone, the promise of the scriptures is a relationship with God is assured. Father, help somebody to know that today. Father, help us to know that while imperfection surrounds us, you, Lord, are perfect in every way. Lord, we love you today, and I pray if there's one here that needs to make a decision for salvation, Lord, they make this day their day. Lord, if there's one here that needs to recommit and ask for that forgiveness you offer and ask for your help to start over, Lord, what a great day for recommitment. Lord, whatever the need today, whatever the prayer concern today, quicken your people and help them to come forward as the need arises. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said.